down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start fighting all night. Welcome to another fabulous episode of Tasting Anarchy, my wine-loving friends. Uh, I'm Jake Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by Mason Joseph. And today I think we've got a pretty good show for you. We've spent a little bit of time preparing notes and preparing, I guess, our wine notes and our ideas. So so hopefully, hopefully this will be another great 2019 episode in the time constraints. And yeah. uh, let's go ahead and get started. Mason, you want to go with your wine or do you want me to introduce my wine first? Let's go with your wine. I'm, I, there's, uh, yeah, uh, I'll talk more about mine in a minute. Okay. So this last week or this past week, I went to Total Wine to pick up some wine and, and Victoria was doing something. And for some reason, I thought they closed at 10. Uh, mm-hmm. We got there at about a quarter to nine and it turned out they closed at nine. Oh, wow. Yeah, so and I guess it's there's some sort of state liquor laws about it on on like Sundays they they have to close at a certain time or on Saturday <laughs> some, some some ridiculousness and you know I had no idea and was just kind of wandering around looking around and and I had like a guy come up and he's like hey can I help you find something I was like no I'm just looking and then he walked off and then another guy hey can I help you find something I was like no no I'm just I'm just looking <laughs> and you know I'm just reading bottles scanning like scanning I'm trying you know seeing you know what they are at other places and stuff like that and then. Finally, this other dude comes in, and I'm in the Pinot Noir section, and he's like, hey, can I uh, help you find something? And I was like, uh, not really. I, I was kind of looking for a Pinot Noir from uh, Santa Cruz, around Santa Cruz in California, because I've heard that they're they're pretty good, and for the price, it's usually a good deal. And he's like, well, that's true. They are really good for the price, but the price is usually 45 to to $100. <laughs> He says, now compared to like a $100 bottle of Pinot Noir from Willamette Valley, I would say that Santa Cruz is a great buy, but you're not going to find like a $20 bottle. And I and he saw what I had in my hand, and that was like two $20 bottles of Pinot Noir from Willamette Valley. He's like, that's you're not going to find that price range here from Santa Cruz. Maybe in Santa Cruz you will. Um, I was like, oh, I, that's interesting because I, I heard it was a great deal, and I was in my mind thinking that I'd buy a $20 bottle and it would taste like a $40 bottle. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, no, no. You buy like a $50 bottle and it tastes like a $100 bottle. I was like, okay, that makes a lot more sense. And he, and he pointed out a few of them. He's like, that one's, th- this one's very good. I've had that one, but it's, you know, $45. That one's $198. It's, it's an excellent one. You, you know, you couldn't, you can't go wrong with that. And I was like, well, I'm looking really for something that's like 20 bucks. And he was like, well, right now we're pushing this particular one. It is very good. It's from the Willamette Valley. It's not exactly the region where you're looking for, but it's $20 and we're closing in one minute. So I think you should maybe get this or get nothing and leave basically. (laughs) Kind of what he was telling me. So I was like, all right, I'll get this and I'll leave. And uh, so what I ended up getting was uh, a Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. It's called Domain uh, Lubejack, uh, spelled L-O-U-B-E-J-A-K-J-A-C. Lubejack. Lubejack. That's Um, what I would think. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's a, it's thirteen point two percent alcohol by volume. It was about twenty bucks. Um, it was on discount at the time, so it was sixteen dollars. But mm-hmm. uh, right now they have it listed on the Total Wine website for twenty. So I think maybe that deal ended. Uh, I I would say as far as a Pinot Noir goes, it's not unbelievably outstanding, but I do think it's a good deal. It has uh, sort of the aroma of French bread, which is always fun. Uh, it's it's very it's what a Pinot Noir should be. It's fruity. It's very light. Uh, it has, you know, it's a very floral smell mixed mm-hmm. in with the French bread. I, I would recommend it for 20 bucks. I mean, or for 16, I think it was a good deal. For 20, it's a pretty good deal if you like Pinot Noir. Uh, and that's really all I have to say about it. It's not unbelievably outstanding. You know, normally Pinot Noirs, they recommend it with like herbal chicken or maybe pork chops or uh, like a, a, a heavier fish, like a rosemary inspired dish. I think. Yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah so like a like a like yeah, that kind of thing. Like maybe or maybe even like lemon chicken or something. But usually lighter mm-hmm. meat, lighter fare. Um, this I actually had this earlier before we started the show, and I had it with uh, veal 
bologna because that's what I was eating. So if you like veal bologna, I thought this went very well with it. Now, granted, I was I mean, let's, let's take a step back. So bologna, yeah, I, I, I know you enjoy. Yes. Veal, I know you enjoy. Yes. Where did you get veal bologna? So there's several types of veal bologna available at the Russian store. Uh, okay, that's what I figured. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and actually, you, you have had this one, I think, because I used to buy it from – Skazka, this is the Russian store near paid, or near our former location of employment, mm-hmm. or my former location of employment. Uh, and it's it's basically it's just veal bologna, and I would get it because Ksam could eat it also because it's it's not halal technically, but it's it's not a pork product. Mm-hmm. And um, it's I think really really outstanding bologna. It's very very uh, brittle. I, not, I don't know how else to explain it. it kind of falls apart pretty easily, mm-hmm. but it it's very good. And the way that we eat it, Victoria and I eat it, well, really we eat all bologna this way, but we've been getting veal bologna a lot lately, and um, we'll crush garlic, and then we'll spread the garlic on the bologna, and then this is the part you won't like, Mason. Then we put a big piece of Danish blue cheese on it, <laughs> and so it's like these like veal bologna and blue cheese garlic sandwiches. Well, to to be 100% honest, I'm not a huge fan of bologna. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's a holdover from childhood when I didn't enjoy it, and mm-hmm. I've just never gone back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not saying I didn't have this when you were here. Okay. Well, it's possible re- you didn't. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember doing so. But also, like, you know, Ashley um, gets the Liberkasa at the uh, at um, the beer garden. And that's like she just yeah. describes it as fried bologna. Yeah, and it's I, very I good. And I very much enjoy the taste of that. So I think, like, like a higher-end bologna i'd probably enjoy um but you know i just i don't pursue it <laughs> right well if we if if ever i'm out there and we do like another cookout there the mm-hmm. other the other thing that victoria has introduced me that is veal is veal hot dogs mm-hmm. uh well there's veal sausages but they're basically hot dogs yeah. and um i've had those but they're like the ones that the russian store are like two feet long mm-hmm. so it's like the thickness of a hot dog but they're like two feet long yeah and uh we should get those and grill them out i think that would be really good yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, so speaking of which, yeah. uh, next weekend we're gonna grill out for my birthday. Mm. So I think we're gonna do hamburgers. And uh, Bob's Burgers does a like a cookbook of joke hamburgers, mm-hmm. like because they have that special the day board. It's always like a pun mm-hmm. hamburger. Mm-hmm. Um, we were thinking about trying to grab a few of the recipes there and kind of like giving people different options instead of just standard, you know, hamburger with uh, the standard way that we do it. Yeah, that'd be fun. So. I, wine-wise, have a vignette um, from the Williamsburg Winery, the 2016 Vesix 100, um, 12.4 alcohol by volume, um, price range in the, like, I've seen it listed a couple different places. I got it at Total Wine, but, like, it literally had a handwritten, like, selling label on it. So interesting. um, Yeah, it was a... Um, it was twenty nine or twenty dollars and ninety nine cents, and then the site that I linked to in our notes ha- recommends it for about twenty eight. And you know the local wine shop that isn't Total Wine here that you and I have a connection to uh, listed for twenty ninety nine. Um, That's pretty good. Deal. And, yeah. Well, what's interesting about it is like it's showing off more of the Chardonnay aspects mm-hmm. of it without the sweetness of Chardonnay in it. Interesting. This this is the first white that I've consciously noticed taste exceptionally different the longer you let it sit in the glass. Huh. Okay. If you swirl it, you know, you can get it to start opening up, but like if you let it sit in the glass for thirty minutes or more, it really changes the profile. Um this is the wine so I mean it was probably a year and a half ago at this point where like um yeah, it was the summer before we started the show when we had that wine that like Ashley just absolutely loved mm-hmm. and it was like super buttery, but like not being like a, it wasn't a Chardonnay. Like we thought it was a Riesling from Williamsburg winery. We know it's from Williamsburg winery. So I really thought it was this Wessex hundred, which is a series. It's from a specific, um, like vineyard they have in their group. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a specific one, for this one, but this one is like more acidic, but when you open it up, it's less acidic. It, it but it doesn't taste like the um the Leesburg one, the uh, Tarar or Tarar one yeah. that I had last week. Um, which but, I think was, was a, that was a vignette as well, right? Yeah. Okay. It was a vignette as well. Um, that one 
was from like three different vineyards. Mm-hmm. This one is from what I understand from one vineyard in the Williamsburg Winery Group. Now, like Leesburg is further away. So this one tastes really different. Um, very light in color, but more acidic. Um, you know, the review that I was reading real quick that I tasted to on or linked to on tasting.com um, talks a little bit more like pineapple. And it kind of has that like acidity of pineapple, but mm-hmm. without fully pineapple. Right. Um, it's definitely not a bad vignette. Um, but given that I was getting the, uh, the other one, the Tarar one, like six or $8 cheaper and it was sweeter, which I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, cause this is more like Riesling, but like the Chardonnay aspects of Riesling where like there's the acidity, but to me it doesn't have, like it does go away and like kind of mellow out as you get, get used to it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have as many flavors open up to it as like Riesling does in the other vignette, the, the Tarar one, it just opens up faster in my opinion. So this right. one really good. I really like Williamsburg winery, um, which is a shame we should have done. Like, yeah. you know, we could have easily gotten their more exotics and they have some more exotic wine varietals, mm-hmm. um, both red and whites. Um, so when you were here, we should have like, really hit them up, but we didn't know what we were doing and, right. um, we didn't know the resource we had there. We may not have appreciated it as much, but yeah, like, um, so for those who don't know, it's literally, if you know anything about like historical Virginia or historical us Williamsburg, like the you know, colonial capital and stuff like that, that's this, that's the one, um, so it's for me, it's about an hour, hour and a half away uh, for Jacob, many thousands of miles now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's exemplary of Virginia wine because it's like they do so much. Like, right. and that's kind of the thing that you see with a lot of the Virginia wineries is they do a lot of different wine styles because Virginia has so many areas that are un- different. Um, and they can, you can kind of try to grow different ones, but you know, they, and be close. So, um, I think definitely when you come back, we're going to go up there, Mm -hmm. um, and get a couple of bottles of weird stuff. I think that, I think that would be a lot of fun. I've got, Mm -hmm. I've got so many alcohol based trips planned now um, (laughs) that I, I'm very like, well, coming up, there's going to be a mini episode for beer tasting with my Mm -hmm. sister, Jory, which so preview for that, everybody. Um, and you know, I'd like, I want to get up to Seattle to see Jackson. I want to get back out to Virginia to see you. I want to go back up to see Nate. And, and so I've got a lot and I, and I want to try to do an episode every time I travel, uh, for something, but mm-hmm. l- let me, let me ask you a question real quick. You, you know, you said you, you left this out and let it open up a little bit. And, uh, what is the temperature that you poured it at? So I poured it at fridge temp. Um, and our fridge is probably, our free like it was on the freezer wall which doesn't have a great insulation set so mm-hmm. um it's probably 31 to 32 okay so this is something i know maybe maybe 37 okay kind of in that area. this is something i've been really interested in lately because uh, is ser- serving temperatures of different wines and vignette they recommend serving at 52 degrees mm-hmm. uh fahrenheit for anybody who uses Celsius, you, you know, I guess, I guess we're the pigs, but you non-American pigs, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but like, so let me run over a couple of the temperatures that I've, I've been reading about lately is, and this kind of gives people sort of a range of the, of, of common wines and what you should be serving them at according to the quote unquote experts. Mm-hmm. I pretty much serve all red wine at, at room temperature, which is in my house about 70 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, but which is five degrees warmer than what they think I should be serving red wines at. So let, I'll go over them real quick. So Sauvignon Blanc is a white wine. Uh, one of my favorite of the white wines is usually drier, uh, very crisp, has a lot of citrus notes. And um, they recommend serving that at 45 degrees Fahrenheit, seven degrees Celsius. Uh, Pinot Grigio, one that is one of your favorites, Mason, mm-hmm. uh, they recommend that at 45 degrees, seven degrees Celsius. Um what are some tasting notes in Pinot Grigio? Do you think usually? I always detected like apple and pear. That was kind of in my mind what Pinot Grigio is like. Lemon, apple, peach, um, but more citrus, mm-hmm. like a more citrusy peach, which is kind of a weird description. But mm-hmm. um, because you know with Riesling and, and Grigio, you can get some of the sweeter ones that are sometimes well, it's Riesling. It's you know semi sweet, but uh, 
Grigio, you can get the you can get a peach in a a weird mix. Okay, that'd be that's interesting because we've had a lot of, of a lot of Pinot Grigios, and I usually serve them at fridge temperature, which is probably mm-hmm. you know maybe forty, maybe a little lower than forty. And, uh, and now that I've been reading these types of things, I'm kind of going like, well, maybe I should start adjusting the temperature and see what I can get it to do. This is, I guess, why so many wine enthusiasts have wine fridges that have different temperatures on the different shelves Mm -hmm. so that they can kind of maintain the temperature that they're supposed to serve their wine at. Mm -hmm. Um, so then the next one is Chardonnay, which you and I are not huge fans of. I actually had a Chardonnay the other day because it was open bar and I was like, well, I don't, I'm not paying for it. So I might as well just have a Chardonnay be, and mm-hmm. then if I don't like it, I just won't drink it and I'll order something I liked. And I, of course I didn't like it, but it was also <laughs> a cheap, a cheap Chardonnay. So it may not have been, uh, I guess representative of Chardonnays, but they recommend serving that at 50. So Chardonnay and, um, Vignay, Vignay is usually billed as sort of an alternative Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the recommendation for Vignay was 52 Chardonnay 50. So that, that's interesting. I think that like, they're very, I guess, similar in that regard. And that is sort of the, um, Sharon in Blanc, which is another white varietal that I think is pretty good. Uh, it's the grape. Well, one of the grapes that's used in champagne, uh, Sharon in Blanc has a similar serving temperature of 52 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the white Zinfandel 50 degrees Pinot Noir, the one that I'm drinking tonight, and I'm drinking at at room temperature, so probably about 70, 72 degrees, 50 degrees. Hmm. I, I think that's very interesting. So it's 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. That's their recommendation. Uh, Merlot, 55 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Red Zinfandel, 65 degrees. Sh- Shiraz, 65 degrees. Cabernet Sauvignon, 65 degrees. So I am almost always drinking the, the reds that they have on this less, list. Mm-hmm. I'm almost always drinking them at fi- 5 to 7 degrees hotter than they should be or hotter than they recommend. Um, I, what, what that plays into the flavor, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think this is something I kind of want to play with. I'm going to start looking for maybe an inexpensive, you know, maybe six to 12 bottle wine fridge. Mm -hmm. I don't really have the room in my apartment, but I do have a space underneath my recording desk that maybe I can like kind of fit it in there. Well, what I would try that I would recommend is start temping your wine. Mm-hmm. Because the air temperature compared to the bottle temperature mm-hmm. is probably different, so you're probably actually drinking a lot of those reds oh, closer yeah. to the suggested serving temperature. Okay, well, that's, now, that's a good idea. Maybe maybe I'm going to start exploring that a little bit and, yeah. and checking it out. So another thing, if you remember the other day, the oh yeah, so it was, I was telling Jackson and you about it that they did the 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 one I'm drinking uh, is part of the fermentation was on acacia wood. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah, yeah, but it, apparently it's a twenty five percent acacia wood barrel from France. Huh. Okay. So that's um, interesting. Yeah, I couldn't find that same little printout again that okay. I, I had last time. All right. Well, um, well, but well yeah, maybe so, we'll maybe we'll investigate that again for later because I'm kind of interested in that. Like another thing uh-huh. that people have this has come up a little bit on Twitter as I've been talking to people about wine. Like I've started making more friends that are in the wine industry that are not necessarily mm-hmm. hardcore anarchists like you and me. And, or Jackson. Or Jackson, right. Uh, <laughs> and and oak has come up several times, American versus European oak, and or French oak versus American oak. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious now to like study a little bit about that. So maybe in the future you guys can look, look forward to an episode that is maybe a mini episode about oak, or mm-hmm. maybe you and I will discuss it as part of a segment. But yeah. one thing I wanted to bring up is that because your birthday is coming up, mm-hmm. I sort of wanted to ship you a uh, Vignet from Texas. Mm. And exactly. Mm. But <laughs> this plays into our article, and that is oh. that – Shipping wine from state to state is is particularly difficult, and there are mm-hmm. right now 36 states that prohibit shipping wine from one state to another unless you have a special permit. Mm-hmm. And so Virginia is actually one of those that has the prohibition. Or no, I'm sorry, pr- Virginia is not one that has a prohibition, but Texas does have the prohibition, hmm. which means I can't ship you from here a wine into Virginia without getting a special permit. Why do I bring this up, Mason? Well, <laughs> you know because we reviewed the notes ahead of time. <laughs> but there's a court case that is about to come up to the Supreme Court. As of when we're recording this, it's going to be on Wednesday, which is the 16th, so three days away. Mm-hmm. Um, we're recording this on January 13th. We are, yes. Mm-hmm. So these days, you know, we can pretty much order anything we want online and have it delivered to our door. There's a few exceptions, but for the most part, you can get whatever you want delivered to your house within a week, maybe two weeks the most, 
for pretty much any product, even cars now, you can have them delivered to your house just within a, a very short period of time. Oh, but much there's a lot of crazy restrictions on that too. Yeah, they play is. into the same thing. Yeah, yep. And so what the court case that's being heard in front of the Supreme Court is it's called te- uh, the case is Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association petitioner versus. Zachary W. Blair, interim director of the Tennessee Alcohol Beverage and Commissions et al. <laughs> so I'm going to link to that. There is a court docket uh, link that I received from the failing New York Times article, which is what I got the summary from this on. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll link to that. But so basically the case focuses, this article actually focuses on this case in particular. And what it is is that as I said, there's 36 states that prohibit shipping wine from one state to another. And what this means is you can, or, you can order wine from a wine shop in-state in these 36 states. But if you are interested in a wine or it's a good deal somewhere else or it's a difficult to get wine in the state that you live in, you are not allowed to order it from a shop out of your state. So if, let's say, you know... Our, our good friend at Yanni's Wine in Virginia Beach. So if any of you are in Virginia Beach, go check out Yanni's Wine. Mm-hmm. Um, if he had a, a, a rare wine or wine that I find difficult to, to get and he wanted, and he was willing to ship it to me, because I'm in Texas, he can't ship it to me. Mm-hmm. Now, I am of two minds of this on this case. So, and, and, I'll, and I'll let you kind of talk to your position on this as well. Um, mm-hmm. This specific case is is ten, is Tennessee specific, but a lot of the expert, the legal experts, when it comes to alcohol shipping and wine shipping, believe that this is going to actually impact the uh, the overall alcohol and wine market and in direct sales in particular. Um, this particular case is going to have a very large impact on total wine because they have not been able to enter Tennessee because Tennessee has uh, a lot of laws restricting retailers from. Uh, opening up a retail location in Tennessee that serve that sells wine if they don't actually live in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, but my thought on this, I'm kind of of two minds. For one, I don't want the the trade restricted. On the yes. other hand, though, I don't want the federal government enforcing federal laws on trade either. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of a catch twenty two on this. Is on the one hand, I don't want I don't want the federal government to try to come in and, and supersede local or state law. Um, on the other hand, I think it's a stupid local or state law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that it's it's an interesting thing. And for like for you and me who are anarchists, don't think the government should do anything. I guess the state level law, we are like, yeah, this is stupid. The state shouldn't be intervening in this or the locality shouldn't be intervening on this. But then on the other hand, like to me, the greater evil is the federal government. Mm-hmm. So when the federal government comes in and overturns local laws, it's like, well, you know, maybe that, that law works for that locality for some reason. But yeah. so the, the, I'm so in the legal contract sense, the states ceded certain authority to the federal government and one of those is the interstate commerce clauses right so to me it seems like a clear interstate commerce violation where i don't agree with the fed interceding on state law except for this is an area that i feel that the state of tennessee has ceded to the federal government you know what i mean like yeah this is a direct interstate commerce i produce wine elsewhere i want to sell wine to someone in tennessee Right. It's not, Jacob, you produce wine in Tennessee and you want to sell wine to me in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. where they, you know, they use the interstate commerce clause as part of their, you know, grab on like marijuana and things like that, which I don't agree with. And they're like, oh, if you sell in the, your internal market, you're displacing and causing distortions in the market compared to the external market. I understand the logic behind it. I don't agree with the logic, but like from that standpoint, this is a you know a power that, in my opinion, was ceded from the states to the you know the the government, the federal government. Right. Which I don't agree that the state had the right to cede that power. Sure, but when we look at like an idea of like the constitution is a contract between entities, state mm-hmm. and federal government, right? And then this, your your citizens have a contract between you and the state if you want to think of it in that kind of capacity Mm -hmm. then this seems like kind of a no-brainer where it's like look these are very restrictive laws now i don't think it's necessarily against the interstate commerce clause to restrict who can produce do commerce necessarily right because they're not saying you can't sell wine in tennessee it's just 
very difficult. Yeah. Well, and and it does seem that this is an effort by cronies, basically, to exclude Total Wine because Total Wine does come into a lot of localities and they undercut local retailers. I think this I think this law has been around for much longer than Total Wine has existed. It has, but the lawsuit is in response to Total Wine trying to come into Tennessee. Uh, understood. Okay, yeah. I, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think this is one of those ones where, you know, you often find it very hard to repeal a law because there's always that bat banana person mm-hmm. who holds up the works for some reason. Right. E- even though, like... You know, everyone's like, the no horses on Tuesday law is stupid. We should just remove it from the book so we don't have as much to print. Right. Well, Maynard, I don't agree with horses on Tuesday. Frank, what the fuck is wrong with (laughs) You know, like that continual problem of people that just get in the way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this this is one of those ones where, like, I don't like the idea, as you said, like, I don't particularly care for the idea of the federal government, like, dictating to the states what they can and can't do. There are times where, like, I can accede to the idea that, like, if the state was, you know, participating in a genocide and the federal government, like, literally stopped the the state from doing a genocide, I, I, you know, you can engineer a situation where, yes, okay, but that's not this situation and that's right. really not going to happen. And plus our federal government, in you know, does genocidal things all the time. And yeah. This, if the states tried to stop in, they would probably get crap kicked out of them. Mm-hmm. But that's, um, you know, kind of one of those things where to um, do a segue, as they call it, um, I think this is a, an opportunity for us to shout out some friends of ours yeah. and shout out because. Uh, well, let's, let's shout out them. Then I have a, like a hypothetical reversal on this topic that I wanted to okay. say. So, well, I. I thought my uh, my transition was good because isn't Wednesday when your Sounds Like Liberty episode that's, posts? Yes, that's true. So th- it's going ah, – Transition. <laughs> yeah, you're We're right. Like that, that is good because um, the transition, that does work except for when we release this episode. It'll <laughs> it'll probably be two Wednesdays prior. So, But you mm-hmm. can go check out Sounds Like Liberty. Actually, I can pull it up real quick and, mm-hmm. and I'll end out the silence. Hang on just a second. Mm-hmm. So those who don't know, Nikki P. and – Lizzie are the uh, hosts of Sounds Like uh, Liberty. Um, Nikki P started the podcast, and then his uh, wife joined him the very next episode, at least as my understanding from yeah. uh, their own history as they posted on the second episode. Yeah, so I believe that, <laughs> I believe that my episode will be 31 of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, you can also catch me on the Friends Against Government, our other podcasting uh-huh. pals. Yeah. Uh, that episode, I have no idea which one I was on. It, it's it's like 48 maybe or 47, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Um, let me look here real quick. Drinking Liberty, uh, I'll, I'll, a, a, episode 47. Yeah. So, so, you know, and uh, what was it? Uh, Bird is actually uh, – Gosh darn oh, it! Oh, Robbie the fire! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know. I, yeah, I think they sound very similar, and yeah. they, but they're but they're still trying to play up this. Uh, they're still trying to play up this uh, like this supposed game. That they're, feud. Yeah, right. This supposed feud that they're different people, but the same person. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then our other friend, uh, Mister mm. Sue, the pseudo intellectual. I have another mini episode coming out soon on a wine that Mister Sue recommended. It's oh. it's not exactly the wine he recommended because I couldn't bring myself to buy that one because I don't like sweet reds. But mm-hmm. I got another one that is, is from the same company, and it kind of plays into something else we're going to speak about later in this show. Uh, so so check out that. Uh, I'm not sure what I'll call it, but it's it was Mr. Sue. So Mr. Sue actually has a new show. As of right now, he has one episode out. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. It's on uh, it's on Dino Files uh, network, which I can't remember what it's called. It's like Airwaves or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, go ahead and check it out. You'll you'll be able to search it. Just search, you can search Dino Files or you can search Mr. Sue, and it'll come up. But let me get back to the, real quick this article because I wanted to give you the hypothetical. Because mm-hmm. so far we've been assuming that the federal government, the Supreme Court. Well, I guess we haven't really been assuming, but sort of we've been assuming that they're going to rule in favor of of interstate commerce. If they rule the other way, though, do you think that the 36 states will expand to maybe all 50, in particular Virginia? Because we've actually done an article on this before where 
the Virginia Wine Growers Association has been petitioning the state of Virginia to restrict people from being able to order wine into Virginia from other states, mm-hmm. specifically California. So I, I think that if this case goes the other way, that might have interesting implications in the availability of certain wines in Virginia and the ability to order direct from wineries outside of Virginia. And I, I just thought, you know, what do you think about that? Do you have any idea or... I, I think so that there's 24 states that don't presumably have some sort of restriction. Mm-hmm. It's not that they don't, we don't, you know, like the New York Times article doesn't, it may not say exactly sure. the, the right way to think about it. Um, so I think some states for sure, but other states, not at all. Mm-hmm. So I think other states are going to be kind of like, it, it's just not going to matter as much to them. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like I would think like maybe, you know, I'm going to pick one at random that I don't know that doesn't have this. But, you know, like a state like North Dakota right. where they may not even have a, a native wine industry that makes sense to have some sort of oversized influence. Yeah, that makes sense. So they, you know, they may not even care, um, you know, maybe someplace like New Mexico where it's like, look, we don't produce enough internal wine to even consider trying this whereas virginia thinks it does <laughs> right you know or like would like that leg up but and also i think there's a good argument to be made that in the current rabble rousing political climate there'll be enough people who present it as basically these are just trumpists mm-hmm. you know because they're trying to use like embargoes mm-hmm. and um trade war you know they're, they it, it's too much like a trump move that people would kind of project that like oh no, no 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 this is you know what trump's doing and look how bad it is for us now look at what britain's doing you know like i i think that right. would be the position a lot of um detractors from that concept would take um but i also think like there's a major recession coming yeah and i don't think that they're gonna want to spend the money like you know, they, they kind of had like the smooth holly tariffs during the great depression. Yeah. Um, so maybe, <laughs> but I don't think people are going to be spending legislative muscle on that. Right. I guess that makes sense. Years. Yeah. No, that, 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 that makes sense. I think that's a good, a good hot take, but speaking mm-hmm. of the government spending money, yes, let's move on to our next topic, which yeah. <laughs> revolves around the 20 ish day shutdown that we are currently in the mid middle of the, the, the government shutdown apocalypse. Of. What's that? I said basking in the glory of, yeah, exactly. Now you and I have discussed this a little bit and this is kind of a silly shutdown because it, it's not really shutting down anything in like, I mean, it does shut down, a, I guess a few things, but, and it does make a couple of people have to work without pay but that's kind of the risk you take when you work for the government. I mean, that's the risk you take with any employer. Yeah. Like you're, you show up to work every week, assuming your paycheck is going to show up when it's supposed to. Yeah. And when I work, having worked in, you know, that industry kind of know that there are some people who just play fast and loose with right. that. Yeah. And, and, some, and sometimes they know. just disappear and don't pay. Yeah. And yeah, well, uh, rarely that, but you know, just like, Oh, I didn't get payroll submitted in time, so you're getting paid next Monday. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. I expect you to get paid Friday. Yeah. Eh. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, I, I find it very difficult to drum like, – even though my, my dad works for the government, but he works in the military, so his pay will not be cut probably for, <laughs> for a long time. But <laughs> I, I just find it very difficult to – like ha- this is going to be very callous and, and – I apologize to anybody who listens to this show for wine and uh, doesn't know to expect my very callous opinion towards government <laughs> workers. Um, I like I find it very difficult to to empathize with them. I, I saw like a CNBC uh, thing thing about like this lady who was like, "It's so embarrassing for me to go to my landlord and tell him I'm not going to be able to make rent this week because I work for HUD and I'm not going to get my paycheck uh, because of the government shutdown and all that sort of stuff." And I was like, "Yeah, but." You want people to have empathy for you in this situation, but do you have any empathy for the people when you steal 30% of their paycheck every week? Yeah, and that's the thing is like, like – I, I, Sometimes I have a struggle making rent, and it's because I have 30% of my paycheck taken. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is like to me, it's – I don't have any sympathy for the thief not getting paid. Right. Like, you know, the the whole reason I wanted to talk about this is like, you know, there's an article floating out of uh, Mises.org, which I, I'm not sure if they 
originally created the article or, you know, they sponsored the content creation or if it was posted to the, you know, um, original creator's blog or something like that. But like how the TSA is just falling apart because like those people, you know, live paycheck to paycheck. And so many of the people who are impacted by this live paycheck to paycheck, but it's like, okay, like how have you mismanaged your life to the point where not getting paid once or twice puts you in a point where you're going to get evicted. Right. You know, it's a, it's a little different if you're like, look, I didn't get paid for six months or, you know, my daughter's got some sort of cancer and I have to, I'm making payments on that. Yeah. Like, okay. You know, you can engineer that situation, but like I could transfer all of my spending to credit cards with some minimal interest payments and make my mortgage payment right for months. Like, I mean, like I've got, you know, Ashley and I carry, you know, an absurd amount of <laughs> cash, basically, sure. uh, balances. And, you know, our everything is structural debt for us. So, but like, I can make those payments for months. Like, I could go live with my parents. Like, you know, I, I, yeah. could, I could just start making money doing something else. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, to me, is so indicative of this is it doesn't, it, it doesn't, sh like, to me, it's embarrassing, like, how pathetic the, a lot of these people are that that's their, their only source of income. Like, I didn't plan for something to go wrong. It's like, right. okay, the government shut down under Obama, the government, I think, shut down or nearly shut down under George Bush. This isn't like it's an unprecedented thing. It's not like you're working for the Weimar Republic going, I didn't know the money wouldn't be worth it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like this this has happened before. Why are so many of these people like don't have a side hustle, don't like have another job or like have some other backup? Yeah. It, it just it's baffling to me. And well, and I think this is part of the sinister nature of the government in general is that it is it does create a culture of dependency and I think Very true. A, a lot of the regulations and a lot of the uh, – and well, actually we're going to get into in this segment uh, a lot of the regulations in the wine industry. But a lot of the regulations prevent people from becoming entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and uh, – or not really prevent it but but sets the bar higher. So it, you know there yes. are people who don't want to reach for that higher bar and – you know, I don't. I don't feel bad. I, I don't. It's not that I don't feel bad for them. It's. It's. I understand them. I, I'm that way too. It's like my my biggest problem is I want to do too many things, mm -hmm. and I never put my full weight behind any one thing. Like that's why I'm happy that I have this podcast because I've been able to stabilize a little bit and actually get podcasts out in a semi regular basis, mm -hmm. and it's a good a good uh, a good way to train myself to do something that doesn't necessarily have an immediate return. It's a good anchor point for the week too. Yeah, exactly. It situates like, okay, I have this amount of time until the podcast. Yeah, I have this amount of time until it has to be posted. Right. Well, and I'll, and I'll tease this a little bit. Is one of my big goals as a libertarian is to write the great libertarian sci-fi novel. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in, in like in the line of like Heinlein or. You know, I don't pretend to be as good of an author as Heinlein or like Ayn Rand or somebody like that, but uh, that's one of my big goals. And Victoria and I were talking about that today, and I was like, I don't know what it is. Like, I have no problem working, you know, 70, 80 hours for somebody else, but I have a hard time spending any time for myself. And, and I was like, but you know, I don't do that anymore because at my new job, I only work like 45 hours. And she's like, what are you doing right now? And I was like, working. She's like, yeah, it's Sunday. And you worked yesterday. You don't work 45 hours. You always work. You're a workaholic and you always have like some sort of weird excuse for why you're doing it. Yeah. And, and I was like, well, you're right. And she's like, you, you don't like, we went to this uh, work party and somebody at work was like, Hey, what are you doing this weekend? I was like, Oh, you know, I got, I got a couple of projects that I'm trying to work on that I'm a little bit behind on. So I was going to just, you know, remote in and maybe do some coding. And they're like, why, why would you do that? We don't work on what, and this was my manager telling me this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's like, we don't work on weekends. Don't set clients expectations that you're going to work on the weekend. If you don't get to it by the end of the week, just tell them you get to it next week. And, and I was going like, yeah, but I need to do it. <laughs> and, and Victoria was like, this is all time you could have been spending working on the great libertarian sci-fi novel or working mm -hmm. on, you know, as we've teased before, Childeberg or my other many, many ideas. And, mm -hmm. uh, and this is kind of the same. And I think that I, I don't, I think this is a personal, maybe not a flaw, but a personal trait of mine that I do this kind of thing. But in the grand scheme of things, the reason that people don't go work on their own stuff is that they go through indoctrination for eight hours a day from age five till age 18. Mm -hmm. And the, and nobody ever asks you what business you want to start when you grow up. They always say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And 
their impl- the implication of what do you want to do when you grow up is who do you want to work for so that you can pay 30% of your income to the government? Mm-hmm. And, or that's at least, that's how I think the implication is. So <laughs> for these people who then work for the government and then pay 30% back to the government, which never made any sense to me, that seems very inefficient, but oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Leaving that aside, what we, what we prepared for this segment of the show after this long rant is, uh, during the government shutdown, uh, several libertarian groups have been getting together, and they have been doing things like cleaning up national parks mm-hmm. and publish- publishing it on, on Twitter or publishing it on Facebook or on um, Instagram, one of these places. And I, I think this is actually a really good way to sort of get the libertarian-esque ca- cause out. This is you know party libertarians, so they're, they're a little bit different than you and me, but we're, mm-hmm. we're you know kindred spirits. And uh, I think that this is a it's a good opportunity to show everybody that you know we don't need the government to do a lot of these services that have shut down. Like clearly they're not important, um, or they or if they are important, they don't need to be done by at the point of a gun by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing in particular, and this is not shut down, but it's it's a good example that comes up with libertarians a lot is Lysander Spooner's American Letter Mail Company and. Mason, I think you and I have talked about this before, and I've I've got some notes here for it. it four times. <laughs> What's that? I think we've talked about it on the show like four times. Okay. Well, so Lysander Spooner is a great libertarian, a great abolitionist, but he's also an abolitionist who is opposed to the Civil War um, for you know mass killing reasons. And he, one of the other one of his other great claims to fame, for those who don't know, is that he started a company called the American uh, the American Letter Mail Company, and they were a direct competitor with the U.S. Postal Service back in the 1840s. And just to give some context, back in the 1840s, the USPS charged the equivalent of today in today's money of three dollars and fifty cents on average to deliver mail. And this could have been just a letter. This could have been a package. It was it was very arbitrary. And the reason it was so arbitrary was that there was a lot of cronyism involved. People would get special charters to um, be in, to basically – it would be basically a private entity. It's sort of like the what people call private prisons now. They're not really private because the government still arrests people, charges them, and throws them into prison. Uh, so the, it's, it's, a, it's, it's cronyism. So – yeah. The USPS at the time was cronyist and they and they charged 14.5 cents uh in 1844 um in 1844 money which to us doesn't seem like very much but because we were on the silver standard if you adjust that for inflation or adjust that for the co- the price of silver now compared to the price of silver then you you come up with about $3.50 to send a letter and and that's a lot of money so Spooner believed that he could uh send these letters for less and he proved that he could send them for less by starting the American Letter Mail Company and charging between, well, depending on what the package was, but between four and ten cents for a package. Um, so the USPS got all pissy about this because you know no no crony wants their business stolen, and they sued him, and they said that it was unconstitutional for him to set this because Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution gives them exclusive right over mail. Mm-hmm. And Spooner, being a lawyer from Boston, self self educated by the way, uh, he said that this is not the case. It gives them the right to start a mail company, but it does not give them the exclusive right to deliver mail. Mm-hmm. And this eventually went to the Supreme Court, and he was put out of business by the federal government. Um, but in 1945, in response to Spooner, they end up dropping their prices to six cents. Um, 1845. I'm sorry, 1845, they ended up dropping their prices to six cents, down from 14.5 cents, and then again in 1851, down to three cents. <laughs> um, and this was just because everybody, they wanted to use his, the Lysander Spooner service. He, he didn't have it, it wasn't universal, it was only between certain cities, but um, he did such a good job, he was so efficient, he was so profitable that people wanted to use his service, and then they started complaining that the uh, that the federal government mail service was charging so much, and so they started lowering the prices and becoming a little bit more efficient, although they were still very inefficient, and they still operated at a loss. Yeah, they didn't become more efficient, they just Dropped lost the price, more yeah. money. Right, right. So this sort of brings me to... Um, other areas, and, and one of the agencies that is, I guess, affected by the shutdown is yours and my favorite orga- uh, agency in, and I use this very sarcastically, in the federal government is the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. Yes. So we've we've spoken about them many times before, particularly in regard to what's going on in Oregon with Copper Cane and the Willamette, the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association and 
the Oregon legislature. So this is this is a company that is undergoing the shutdown. Some of the services, the quote unquote services that they provide, are um, wine labeling. So you, you mm-hmm. if you want to label your wine and sell your wine, your label has to be approved by this organization. Um, for some reason, it's abbreviated TTB. So I don't know why like alcohol is left out of it because I would say TTB would be like Tax and Trade Bureau. It, it's because this bureau picked up after Prohibition. I think it existed before. Okay. Um, so I think it was just tobacco and tax okay. or tobacco and trade beforehand. Okay. All right. Well, that makes I, I that mean, that he, makes sense. I may not have that fully right. All right. Well, this bureau is it's abbreviated TTB. So anybody who's listening, if you want to. Look it up. You can look up TTB. It's a federal agency. So they're also uh, responsible for regulating imports and exports of wine. They're responsible, well, for regulating imports and exports. So they don't they don't prevent it or anything, but they they are the ones who do some inspection in hand in hand with other organizations. They're mm-hmm. also responsible for statistical compilation. Which oh, kind of a weird thing to add on to that. Um, they do some law enforcement, but not all law enforcement in regards to alcohol. They do uh, permitting. So if you wanted to open a new winery in a specific AVA, um, you would have to get a permit for them. You'd also, if you want to open up a brewery, you have to get approval from them. If you want to open up a local brewery and only sell your brew locally, you still have to get federal approval. Um, and they also do uh, some certifications. It just depends on what the certification is. It mostly it relates to uh, American viticulture areas. So obviously, you and me, Mason, I think can agree that this is not necessarily a useless organization, but an organization that really does not need to be. It doesn't um, need to exist. Yeah, it doesn't need to exist. And and any of the things that are useful that it does could easily be handled privately or on a local or state level, preferably privately. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've got actually two examples of private organizations that handle things in the wine industry that are similar to what the TTB does, but I figured I'll let you go ahead and respond or add anything you want to that first portion. So I wanted to know why it shortened to the TTB. Well, it turns out this was actually created in 2003 when the Homeland Security Act of 2002 split the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms into two new organizations with separate functions. Specifically, the act transferred ATF and its law enforcement functions uh, from the Department of the Treasury to the Department of Justice. ATF's other functions dealing with tax collection and regulation of legitimate trade remain with the trade uh, Treasury Department and became part of the new TTB. Hmm. You know how many people work for this organization? No. So 478. Oh. Uh, that's not very many at all. <laughs> yeah. So apparently in 2006, they had 531 employees. So apparently, while our economy has grown a lot, um, they've lost, uh, you know, almost 100 employees. Well, you so know, this, that's actually not needed. That's very interesting because I was reading recently that there's a couple of uh, government organizations that are really having a hard time recruiting young people, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the IRS. So the like the average age of IRS agents is like 47, <laughs> and they just can't they can't recruit new people, even though they offer fairly good competitive salaries. It's just it's so boring, and mm-hmm. also people feel bad about it. And a lot of the older IRS agents are starting to retire, and so the IRS is actually struggling to recruit new people, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought I thought was very interesting. Um, and so I wonder if I wonder if this agency, along with some of the others, is kind of experiencing the same thing: is that we're getting to the point where people just maybe not like intellectually, like they don't have a, a moral argument against joining one of these ag- agencies, but they have an instinctual revulsion uh when it comes to being part of some sort of bureaucratic mess um you know i i I think it's more along the lines of um so like you know how the the current statistic is that it's like unemployment is so incredibly low but it's really you know so many people just left the workforce yeah um i think what we're seeing is like the people who are participating in the workforce and who qualify for those jobs, because a lot of those jobs have some pretty high posting requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you also can't have done drugs. You know, there's, there's right. a lot of stuff to it. Um, I think the people who are qualified to do it just qualify to work other places and choose that, to. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes and, sense. And so, like, the people who would become IRS agents and, and stuff like that, it's just like, yeah, I can make more money elsewhere. Or... Maybe, like you said, maybe those people who you know are clean and all, you know meet all these requirements are just like, nope, nope. I, yeah, I'd rather work I in just, private sector. I'd rather do something else. Yeah, and you know, this actually this came across, you know, my 
my palate or whatever at one point in my life is uh, I had the possible opportunity to work for the Federal Reserve Bank. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it for about five minutes and was like, you know what? <laughs> Can I justify this? Because, you know, you remember when I first started working for our former employer, mm-hmm. I didn't have an objection to working for our employer. I had an objection to tax enforcement, mm-hmm. which a lot of tax enforcement is uh, mandated by law and enforced by employers or by the uh, the vendors that the employers hire to do things like payroll. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my biggest gripes with uh, doing as much tax work as I did at our at where I used to work is that I, I just didn't want to do the tax enforcement. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't like doing it, and I worked there for a long time, and just every time I did it, it was soul-sucking. It's just yeah. like I just – I don't want to do this. I, I was not really doing enforcement exactly, but I was doing calculations for collection. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the amount of mandated – and then I would look at like – the amount of money I was charging to these companies to do these ridiculous mandates that particularly the Affordable Care Act, like for anybody who doesn't know, like the Affordable Care Act is such a burden for mm-hmm. the employer because the amount of money they have to spend to do the calculations to collect or to report, actually it's not even collecting, it's just reporting, mm-hmm. is astronomical. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's not even like it's a logical calculation. Yeah. Like if you're employed, if you work on this, if you pay on this frequency, use this number. It's a retrofit to, oh, if you work, it's just do everything weekly. It's like no one collects information in that method. Yeah, it, it's, it's insane. But anyways, to get back to this thing is if, if the TTB was fully shut down and uh, wasn't doing anything, I think that for the useful items that they do, we would have private organizations stand up to do some of this. And there is actually two regulating bodies that I wanted to kind of point out that are uh, private, non, not-for-profit mm-hmm. uh, companies. And, and you know, a lot of people, they don't, a lot of people that are sort of in our vein of thinking don't like nonprofits. Um, but there's nothing in capitalism that says that you have to work for a profit. So mm-hmm. a profit, like, and, and also, you know, Mises talks about this, the subjective theory of value, Um if you value the feeling you get from doing certain things above the monetary profit, then you are doing it technically for a profit. It's just not a monetary profit. Yeah, so, and that's the thing is like a nonprofit doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't the most efficient business. Right. It just like, means look, that they, they wanted to take this this route to kind of get around some of the government regulations. Yeah, well, or you know, even then, like even not even taking it from that like measure, it's like, look, you know, I want to make furniture, but I'm making furniture that can be bought by this range of people. And I didn't make any, you know, like I exactly compensated myself enough for my time. Cause like, that's a, the other measure of a nonprofit is like, when people think of a profit, it's like, people always think like they, these businesses lose money. It's like, well, no, they paid out all of what they earned in salaries and or expenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so like I, you know, made $10 million, but I spent that $10 million digging wells or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. So that makes sense. So the two organizations that I have is the first one is the Meritage Alliance. Have you heard of them, Mason? Other than when you texted it to me? No. (laughs) Okay. So this, this organization is something I actually found out recently, and this is thanks to some wine, um, wine investigation, I guess, that has been spurred on by a recommendation from Mr. Sue, the pseudo intellectual, mm-hmm. who, uh, whose podcast we've mentioned earlier. Um, he recommended a red, a sweet red wine from Lilano. I did not get the sweet red wine because I do not like sweet wines and it was like six bucks. So like, I was like, well, I'll only lose six bucks if I get this. But on the other hand, like I really don't like sweet red wines and I don't want to spend six bucks on something I'm going to throw away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may still get it, Mr. Sue. So stay tuned. I, so Jacob, send me the link and I'll, I'll, if I can get it, I'll get it. Okay. All right. I'll send you the link to it. So this is a Texas wine, so you may or may not be able to get it, but Mm-hmm. Um, they, the Lilano is a fairly large wine producer here in Texas. They also make a Meritage Red. So what the Meritage Alliance does is it was started in the mid-80s, I think 1985 actually, and their goal was to promote uh, new world wineries and new world vineyards making red blends and white blends in the style of Bordeaux. Hmm. And they there there's a lot of stuff that goes into it, but mostly it's just it's just the the top grapes from the regions that are selected, and then they blend those together in the style of Verdot, and they try to produce a Burgundian style red blend or white blend 
from New World Wineries. So this is a nonprofit. It is an independent certification. Um, and I think that this is a good example of how, of one way um, you could be doing, for example, uh, American viticulture areas is that mm-hmm. you right now, now there is some law enforcement involved in this because I think Meritage is trademarked, but mm-hmm. you cannot put Meritage on your label unless you are certified by the Meritage Association. I think there's other ways that you could deal with this that do not involve uh, government enforcement of Meritage, but you could have some sort of like holographic label or some sort of trademarked seal or something like that that would tell the consumer that this is an actual certified Meritage wine in this case or Willamette Valley wine in the case of a uh, American viticulture area. Yeah, I mean, like now you could have you know um, QR codes sure. linked to your website. I mean, like the, the internet is an explosion of possibilities to help this yeah. enforcement Our yeah. idea of like, no, 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 this is from us. Yeah, I mean, like and. <laughs> And the emerging technology that's in that's behind Bitcoin blockchain could could mm-hmm. even do more forceful enforcement of authentication through blockchain. I mean, you could do block. You, oh, we should try to develop this a blockchain program for tracking um, grapes from where they're produced within the vineyards. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, maybe so I'll like, look into that. <laughs> so, like, you could scan the QR code and it would load into this. So you could kind of like every time you know you interacted with it, it would like make an algorithm, or like a. So like you scan the QR code and this bushel goes in here, you know, like kind of like how. Uh, so you, you scan them all, and so then like you know you scan them all into this production barrel and then you know you can do the percentage out <laughs> that, would be that, really that, would, that would be super interesting actually because you know and this goes into coming out uh i this will be released on a tuesday so this will be i guess two fridays prior to when we release this i've mm-hmm. got a the four cabernet franc review that gets into terroir a little bit this would yeah. be like this would be like terroir on steroids yeah exactly because, and i think that like it would be really interesting yeah it would be so kind of moving on, speaking of terroir mm-hmm. and speaking of the way that wine is produced, another organization that I didn't realize was private until Jackson Blood mentioned it, and maybe we'll have him on to talk a little bit more about bio- biodynamic wine, mm-hmm. is is biodynamic certification. So just in a nutshell, what biodynamic is, it's like, it is organic, but it's like organic mixed with witchcraft. It's got a lot <laughs> of like, you only, I, I'm going to put a link to... Um, the wine folly article about it it mm-hmm. is really interesting and it is but and it is very like witchcrafty in a lot of the in a lot of the ways they do it. so it's basically <laughs> uh the way that they do it is you've got specific days that you can do specific things to your grapes so you have fruit days so it's the it's the best day to harvest the fruit you have mm-hmm. root root days and that's the ba- best days for like pruning your grapes and then you have like flowering days uh, which are the days that you don't touch the grapes because that's when the grape is trying to like have sex with other grapes. And <laughs> and then you have like leaf days, which is the um, best days to water the plants. So like there's all this other, this other interesting stuff. And they also have like where you like take cow's horns and like fill it full of cow shit and then like bury it. And like that's one way that you like somehow like align the energies of the of the grapes to – and it all sounds like it's incredibly wacko and insane. But when you go and like read people's reviews of these, they're like, this sounds insane and it sounds crazy, but this is some of the best wine that you're going to get. And and it's it's very, very interesting. So it's like it's like organic on steroids mixed with witchcraft. Yeah, so, the, you know, this is one of those ones where, you know, did somebody buy the doll, buy the hype <laughs> when they drank it? Yeah. And, you know, it's not that they're lying to you. They, right truly believe this but like did they buy the hype um but yeah that's the you know that's kind of the you know the idea of like a lot of these things that the you know the government services that are shut down like you know like out in joshua tree apparently somebody cut down one of those trees but it's Mm -hmm. like if that had been private property and those were of value they would have been protected yeah whether it was shut down to visitors or not Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the like the way that the government like dissuades you of value of things it's like well well, well, yeah and i also think it's kind of interesting that they were like that in when i read a little thing about like when they that guy who cut down the tree or or who they don't know who did it i guess but um they're they're very unique trees and Mm -hmm. uh but the idea that somebody wouldn't have done it in a park as big as joshua tree if the government had been there maybe they wouldn't have but Mm -hmm. at the same time it's like it's a huge national forest and it's largely desert in very remote areas. It's not like people couldn't have done it with the government there. And I bet you if we went and did some investigation, there has been times when people have done things like this in Joshua Tree when the government was active. 
Oh, I'm sure. Um, but kind of to get real quick back to to the um, biodynamic wine certification. So the company is also a nonprofit that does a certification in the U.S. The company is called uh, Demeter Association Inc. And mm-hmm. they do it. They're a nonprofit. They don't just certify. Uh, biodynamic wine or d- biodynamic vineyards, but they also certify other types of biodynamic grown food because it's the process wasn't designed specifically for wine. The process was designed for a lot of different things, like any sort of plant stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't. Those are just those are two examples of private organizations taking on certifications. And you and I have talked about this a lot before, like when we talk about like uh, the TTB certifying things or different organizations certifying things or like the state of Oregon certifying things is we go like, well, this is really unnecessary. And finally, I did some research to see, well, is anybody doing any sort of certification beyond that? And it's true. There are. Here's two examples. There's many other examples. I just didn't cite them here that do very thorough and and they're they're – ability to make money on this is reliant on them being accurate yeah and that's kind of the um it's like a trade associations yeah like a lot of those are designed with the idea that like to help businesses that interact in the same market get together but it's also designed for consumers to be able to go like okay are you a member of this trade association is it worth taking a risk doing business with you mm-hmm. and then you know like my side project like that's a big thing like yeah to like be able to go to these trade associations and find people doing business. Right. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, yes. I guess my fa- my final thoughts on that are just the government shutdown is really nothing because it's not actually that big of a shutdown. It's a partial mm-hmm. shutdown and there's still a lot of people The the media does seem to be blowing it up quite a bit because it's their sacred cow. But um, overall, I think a lot of this stuff could be done privately. I get, we gave two examples here, so I'm not really trying to make the argument. <laughs> I mean, I think the majority of people who listen to this show already know my position on it and already know yours, Mason. Mm-hmm. But uh, we hope that anybody who listens to this show for the wine has sort of maybe gained an, a different appreciation for how this stuff is regulated and done. But if you disagree with us, I'm, I'd be happy to hear from you. Um, you can reach out to me or Mason. I, if, if Mason doesn't doesn't check the outlets as often as I do, but if you want to talk to Mason specifically, I can forward him the message for sure. Yes. Um, so it's on Twitter at tasting anarchy. You can also reach out to me, uh, tasting anarchy at gmail.com. I do check the email frequently. Uh, you can also go to our website. There's, I think the comments are working, but I, somebody told me that they were not, but you can also go mm-hmm. over to Podbean and comment directly on this episode. And I will see it when I'm checking the episode download statistics. Yeah. And you could comment on iTunes. You could leave a review on iTunes, Spotify. Um, are we on Google play? Yeah. We're, we're uh, uh-huh. no, not Google play. We're on Google podcast, uh, Google podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, th- that's the thing is like, so a couple things, you know, if you like what we're doing, definitely share the show, uh, let other people know that we're doing it because like sounds like Liberty and friends against government, we're a different generation of Liberty podcasts mm-hmm. where yes, we are obviously are anarchists, um, but our focus is on wine and, you know, we, it's not politics 24 seven here. <laughs> so right. yeah. And you know what? We make pocket politics. Yeah, so. I mean, we do. Yeah, we do a lot of politics, but it's usually it's 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 wine related stories mm-hmm. with a twist. So if you, if you're interested in this, we've actually got quite a few episodes. So check out our backlog. One episode I I really want to recommend is um, the episode with Jackson Blood, which was. Uh, episode 33 that has been one of our most popular episodes it is jam-packed with information he was also on our new year's episode also one of mm-hmm. our most popular episodes so if you guys want to just kind of go get a taste of what's going on if you're new to the show um go ahead and check out episode 33 and episode 41 at least the first hour of episode 41 because it was very long <laughs> very long i yes. think after the first hour i was too drunk to make a lot of sense but uh, I thought you made sense the entire time, so I was probably <laughs> intoxicated. But yeah, so, right. I mean, what I will say is if you want an episode that isn't necessarily always so heavy on like political stances necessarily, mm-hmm. any episode with Jackson, because he's our he's our, our wine expert. Yes. And not that Jackson doesn't have like good political stances and good thoughts and theories on those things, but unfortunately we do milk him for his wine experts yeah. on those expertise on those episodes. So they definitely kind of mitigate some of the politicalness. <laughs> All right. 
Well, I think that is all I've got today, Mason. Do you have anything else? Nope, just stay free. All right, stay free, everyone. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Port and sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilfrey at Willie's Den. He wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine for the other day. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for the other day. Wine for the other day.